turned on, we're ready to go. It's dummy proof this morning. That's good. Okay, we will continue our Victory in Christ series uh, next week, but um, since we're going to have to move a little quicker, I'm going to go to Romans chapter 13 and something I wanted to share with you that might fit better into this time. So let's go to Romans chapter number 13. And I know some of you are in Romans class. I'm sure you're going to hit this passage, but um, i uh, just like to uh, spend a few moments at the end of Romans chapter number 13 and challenge us about... Uh, Selfishness versus selflessness. I think most of us understand the greatest enemy that you have is yourself. And uh, that uh, self life is a life that honestly Baptist College of Ministry tries really hard to confront, okay? The self life. And there's passage of scripture here that I want us to just walk through very quickly because at the very end it gives us a couple of really keys when it comes to dealing with the self-life. Now, many of you may know these, but I want to just to spend a few minutes because they're so practical. One's theological, one's practical, and they fit together just, just tremendously. But let's begin in verse number 8. We'll just quickly walk through the passage, and then we'll spend most of our time on verse number 14. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Now, that's simply saying that selflessness fulfills the law. And obviously selflessness is obviously epitomized by the concept of love. Verse number 9, For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now what he's simply saying is simply this, that if you're selfish, you're going to break these commands, but if you're selfless, you won't. Okay, have you ever thought about the fact that murder is real selfish? Have you ever noticed that? It really is not thinking of the other guy, okay? That one's pretty obvious, okay? And stealing is another, is, 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 as well. If you steal from someone, you obviously don't love them. Uh, I hope none of you have ever done this, but I find a lot of teenagers today steal from their own parents. If you've ever stolen from your parents, I can tell you right now you don't love your parents because you wouldn't steal from somebody you love. That makes sense, doesn't it? You steal from your roommate, then you don't love your roommate, okay? Hopefully nobody does that. I remember years ago at the college I went to, they had a, a thieving ring that uh, was going on, and, and they had different ways to catch them. They were a little more high-tech. I guess uh, Tim Lorch could probably help us with this, but now uh, they'd have dust. They'd put out bait and dust it up with uh, some uh, ultraviolet dust, so you, if you got it on you, ultraviolet light would show you stolen, stuff like that. And they had ways to try to catch them uh, and different things. I won't go into all the ways that they did. But, um, uh, well, selfishness obviously is going to, people will steal, lie. You lie to somebody, it's because you're really selfish. You don't care about the other person, and so you don't tell them the truth. Okay, so that's pretty simple. I think most of us see that as it walks down through here. And then verse number 10, love work, worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love's all about somebody else. It's certainly not about us. And that, knowing that the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for it is now is our salvation nearer than we believed. And again, I believe that's obviously using salvation not only in the salvation from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin as well. Verse 12, we're just giving context quickly here. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Now, it's interesting in verse number 13, it's a really great verse there. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. It gives us three duets, three duets uh, that deal with selfishness. When a man gets drunk, he's selfish to the core. When a man takes drugs or a woman takes drugs, they are selfish to the core. See, the very first one deals with uh, those, that's the sin of obviously drunkenness, 
And uh, the other idea of rioting has the picture, uh, the under the, understand the Greek word was uh, kind of a drunken party. It was the idea of people would go down the streets and, and they would be worshiping the god of wine, Bacchus. The god of wine to be a drunken, uh, you know, kind of just uh, profligate uh, parade down the street is the idea of that word rioting there. So it's not just uh, the idea of rioting in our modern sense. It would have the idea of inebriation. Uh, in it. So let me say, simply say this. Anybody who uses illegal drugs, even anybody who abuses prescription drugs, anybody who drinks alcohol is selfish. You can mark it down because the Bible says they are. <laughs> See, it's selfish behavior. So that's what, the, and then it says, not, the next one is into the mor moral realm. It says, not in chambering and wantonness. The word chambering is a real blunt Greek word. I mean, it's a real blunt Greek word. And uh, that's one of the things I love about the King James Version. It just uh, kind of makes it appropriate, gives us a very appropriate English word, chambering. Uh, I won't go into it. I'll let you study it out. But it's obviously dealing with the full arena of moral failure. So it's like this. Anybody who looks at pornography is selfish. Anybody who indulges in lustful thoughts is selfish. Any guy-girl relationship where they begin to kindle one another's passions outside of the bonds of marriage is selfish. It's like this when a guy says, well, we do this because we love each other. He's lying. He doesn't love that girl. He loves himself. See, so any gir girls, if a guy comes along and he wants to take liberties with you that should only be taken in the bonds of marriage, and he says that he loves you, he's lying to you. You just need to learn he's lying to you. Because the Bible says, chambering and wantonness, all the aspects of morality where there's kindling of passion outside of God's proper place is only selfish. Don't try to spin it that it's anything else but that because you're, you're obviously lying to yourself and you're lying to whoever you're trying to, to, to pass it off on. So you guys need to understand, if you get into any kind of moral failure, whether it's in the mind or looking at something, it's because you are as selfish as you could possibly be selfish because if you loved your future wife, you wouldn't even think about doing it. See, I want you to understand you've got to see it like God sees it. And that's why uh, when this stuff starts going on, guy-girl stuff starts going on, and in the name of, well, we love each other, they're lying to themselves. They don't get it. Because if they cared about each other, they would preserve moral purity. They would certainly not uh, go down a road that can bring scarring to each other. Okay, so again, could preach a whole message, and actually I do have a whole message on this, but for right now we're just kind of cutting to the verse I want us to get to, then not in strife and envying. Strife and envying is always selfish. It's just selfish. I'm not trying to be unkind, but if you have trouble with your roommate, there's a problem with you. You say, well, no, the problem's with them. Well, it takes two to tangle. You ever notice that? You can't fight alone. Have you ever heard that? Try to fight yourself sometime, okay? Try to punch yourself in the face, okay? You know, the point is, you, it takes two to fight. And uh, the Bible says, only by pride cometh contention. So you mark this down. You're having trouble with your roommate. I don't care if your roommate's the proudest guy on the campus. You're proud too because it takes two. It takes two. You don't get along with your parents, not just your parents, it's you. You ever have contention? You ever have strife? You ever not get along with somebody? Don't blame the other person. You got to say, I got a problem, okay? So the point simply is God is trying to simply say, I want you to deal with your selfishness because it manifests itself in all kinds of ways. So addictive behavior, alcohol, drugs, okay, all that stuff, it's selfishness. Okay, moral sin, uh, immorality of any nature, whether it's uh, mental or actual, whatever, it's all selfishness. Okay, any kind of strife, any contention, bad. Uh, that you're fi uh, fa uh, fighting that um, uh, cause there to be uh, words spoken and heat and anger and whatever. Okay, God's saying, okay, that's obviously selfish. Okay, so we get that. Okay, we understand that. I won't go into all the ins and outs of it, of, of some of the aspects uh, of this. But um, 
So see, so when it comes right down to it, what is then the answer to overcoming selfishness? That's verse 14. And verse 14 is really stunning because the very first part of the verse is theological. And the very first part of the verse has actually been the theme, if you haven't picked it up by now, you're really in trouble, of the whole year. And pastor's been preaching on it now for three solid months, every Sunday morning and every Sunday night, okay? It says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's an imperative um, mood for all you Greek students. Uh, how many know what I'm talking about? Okay, Dr. Paul, look around. Okay, but anyway, okay, uh, the imperative mood there. And uh, uh, it's very interesting because there's a verse of Scripture that uses the indicative mood, okay? In Galatians 3.27, it says, For as many as are baptized into Jesus Christ have put on Christ. Okay, so i got a question for you. How can you command somebody to put on Christ when the Bible says they already have? Have you thought about that? Well, if you learn this, you probably understand this if you have done Greek very long at all. You'll learn that often in a Pauline epistle, or at least about half the Pauline epistles, it seems that Paul uses this. He dominates the first few chapters with the indicative, and he dominates the last few chapters with the imperative. And there's a really neat verse in the book of Galatians that kind of puts it all together where he helps us understand what he's talking about. He says, for you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Did you catch that? You guys used to walk in darkness. Now you're light in the Lord. Now does he, what does he say next? He uses an imperative and he says, walk as children of light. Okay, saying, you are in light, so live like it. Okay, so that's what we're talking about, positional and practical truth. And I think one of the things you need to understand, there is a distinction between positional and practical truth. Don't have time to go into all the theological ramifications, and there are many. And it's very important to be clear on this, but that's not the purpose of the message. The purpose of the message is this. What you are in Christ, you must make decisions to believe it and act upon it. That's Romans 6. You're going to learn that in Romans class. You're dead to sin in Christ. You're alive to God in Christ. No doubt about it. His death, His resurrection. We are in union with it. It has tremendous ramifications, but it must be reckoned, and it must be acted upon. And that's what he's saying here. So I'm not obviously at this point fully developing it except to say what you are learning this year is absolutely essential. It's not enough to know who you are in Christ. You must believe it and act on it. See, it must be believed, acted on. Put you on the Lord Jesus Christ because you are, because you have. The moment you got saved, believe what you are. Okay, so that's uh, uh, simple truth. Again, much more could be said there. But what I want us to focus on is that last phrase. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Now, isn't that interesting? In other words, it's kind, of, it's kind of like this. You could go through all this year, learn everything about who you are in Christ. You could uh, get a hold of that theological truth. But if you don't do the second one, you're going to be in trouble. So what's God saying in the second one? He's saying your flesh is so deceitful, so bad off, so powerful. If you give it an inch, it will take a mile every single time. So don't make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So it's like this young person. Compared to the Holy Spirit, the flesh has got nothing. I mean, you know, we all know walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust in the flesh, Galatians 5, 16. And most of you Greek students know that that's a double negative. I hope you know it's a double negative. And most of you know that in the Greek, if there's a double negative, it doesn't negate the negative. Guess what it does? It intensifies the negative. So when God's telling us walk in the Spirit, He's saying, you're, you start walking in the Spirit, you're not going to in no way fulfill the lust of the flesh. And I believe what we're seeing here in Romans chapter number 13, verse 14 is, 
Don't give your flesh an opportunity, because if you do, you'll regret it. Now, some of you are going to go home. You're going to have to make decisions not to give provision to the flesh. Now, I don't know what that may be for you, but I'm for sure for some of you, there probably are some very important decisions you need to make now about not giving your flesh an opportunity to get a foothold. Because many times, as we mentioned yesterday, you have a history of the past, so you go home and you have this template, so to speak, and the certain things happen, and then you're in a place of temptation and you're done. Because you have not been careful, you've made provision for your flesh. And the idea is this, if you want victory and you're just sick and tired of defeat, then you've got to reach a point where you become desperate and you say, I'm done with it. I don't care what it takes. I do not want to give my flesh an opportunity to get me on this deal. Uh, let me give you a couple uh, illustrations that may help. My dad years ago was out soul winning with the um, converted gangster George Mensick. You, many of you hear about George Mensick around here because all of us knew him and he was such an unusual man. He, he, he had the exterior of a gangster. He really did. He was a big guy, double chin, and he had the Chicago accent. He never, he did not, just like you German people, he couldn't say TH. He would say dis or dat. Okay, you know that kind of talking about. And, uh, uh, but, uh, but anyway, he was, uh, he was the real deal, Chicago accent. And uh, I remember as a kid, if you were running in the church, George Minson would say, hey, kids, stop running. You stopped running, okay? You didn't want this gangster to have a relapse, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, because it could happen. And uh, uh, so we feared the guy. We really did. And, uh, but he had a heart, a uh, tender heart. He had a rough exterior, but he had a tender heart. Uh, a new staff member came into Marquette Manor, and he met George Menchik and his wife, Elsie, and uh, here's how George introduced himself. He said, I'm George, this is Elsie. She's a good wife, but her feet stink, okay? But anyway, that was, that was George Mensick. okay? But, um, uh, but anyway, so um, uh, he was out soul winning with my, uh, my dad was out soul winning with uh, George Mensick, the old gangster, and they came into a house, and the gospel opportunity seems just wonderful. And my dad was starting to get into the gospel, and all of a sudden, pulling in his suit coat, and George Mensick said, Preacher, we've got to get out of here. Preacher, we've got to get out of here. And my dad's going, George, George, you know. And uh, trying to get, and finally, George Mensick just took off. He just went out the front door and went outside. And it's so through my dad, even though it was a great gospel opportunity, he just closed it down, tried to hopefully leave an open door for a future visit, and went outside. And when he did, he said, George Mensick was out in the front yard, pacing back and forth. And my dad came out and said, George, what in the world's going on? He said, Preacher, didn't you see it? Didn't you see it? He said, see what? He said, there was a deck of cards on the coffee table. George Mensah could not be in the presence of a deck of cards. Now, I would assume everybody in this room could not only be in the presence of a deck of cards. If you were, you probably didn't even know what it was for some of you. I mean, I'm a preacher's, I'm a naive preacher's card. Oh, is that a new version of Old Maid? You know, I don't know. You know, I, I, you know what I'm saying? I, I would be kind of naive about the deal. I wouldn't tremble. I wouldn't be worried about it. But it was such a temptation because it was such, he used to run some of the gambling parlors in the back smoke-filled rooms in Chicago. Yes, those things are true about Chicago. I can tell you many things that are true about Chicago. But anyway, um, he used to run those things, and he could not be in the presence of a deck of cards. Now, you would be extremely foolish if you were in George Mensick's day and say, oh, come on, George, just get over it. No, the point is, because of his past, he cannot be in the presence of a deck of cards. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
He's not going to make provision for the flesh because he knows the pull of that former life and he does not want to go back. It may not have been George Mensick, but I'm pretty sure I've met somebody who could not even walk in front of a bar. I'll be honest with you. I can walk down the street and walk in front of a bar, and I'm going to tell you why. I don't even know it was a bar until I'm past it. I just even, I don't even think about it. You know, I'm not tempted by a bar. I, 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 I'm not saying I couldn't be. If I made bad decisions, I could be, so could you. But right now it's not. And I've heard there's been people who literally could not. They'd have to cross the street, go across the bar, and then come back across. They could not even walk across the door. Why? Because they didn't want to get rid of the flesh. They didn't trust their flesh. See, every one of you in this room, God may lead you to different applications. Now, the Bible is true for all of us, but some of us have to take stronger applications. Do you know why? Because of poor decisions we've made in the past, because of temptations of the past, or because of flesh issues that you are uniquely know, they are a temptation to me. I am uniquely tempted by those because uh, maybe other kids at BCM aren't, but I am. Maybe give you one that a little bit more... Um, perhaps applicable to this audience. But uh, I was traveling in 1988, had a young man traveling with me. At that time, was one of the older guys that traveled with me. He was 24 years old. He got saved at 20. He was a teenage alcoholic, got wondrously saved, and I mean, he got saved all over. He's been in Christian work at a large Christian camp down south now for probably three decades and served the Lord as a heart for God. And uh, he was traveling with me at the time. His name's John. And one day, John comes to me, and he says, uh, Brother Van Gelderen, they used to call me Mr. Van, but Brother Van Gelderen, he said, um, um, could you get somebody else to go in the gas stations and pay for the gas? Now, this was back in the day. I know this is going to shock you, you poor millennials, but we used to have to go in the gas station to pay for the gas. If you don't believe it, just ask Doc Flanders or Brother Zempel uh, or Brother Himes. He would know, too. We had to go in the gas station. No pay at the pump, and you had to pay for the gas. So I always had one guy on the team. That was his job, pump the gas, Go in and pay for it, bring the receipt, bring the card, stick it in the financial bag, zip it, put it under the seat. That was John's job. He comes to me one day and says, okay, uh, Brother Van Gelder, could you get somebody else to go into the gas station and get the gas? I said, absolutely, John, I can do that, but I'd really like to know why. Could you tell me why? He said, no. he said Brother Van Gelder, and he said, before I got saved, he said, I bought some things in quick stops that I really... I, I'm t every time I go into a quick stop, he said, I'm tempted. Now, I'll be honest with you. I, I can make wrong decisions, and that could be a problem in my life, too. Please understand what I'm saying here. But based on where I am in my life right now, when I walk into a quick stop, there really is no temptation. Well, if there's a Coca-Cola for 99 cents, I might be tempted to get a Coke and uh, uh, cut my life for a few minutes. Okay, but anyway, uh, but certainly enjoy it. Okay, on the way down. I love Coke. Don't ask me wrong. Why? I, don't, I just do. Okay, but the point is, I'm really not tempted. Now, so what do you think I said to John? Oh, come on, John. Buck it up, man. Get used to it, bud. No, I said, you know what? You're not going in any more quick stops. You see, friends, that's what we're talking about. Now, the problem today is the issue he was talking about, if I could put it this way, his quick stop was something on the magazine rack. Our quick stop could be here. <laughs> See. I don't know what you have to do, but I want to tell you, friend, I don't care how radical it is. If it's what you have to do to not give your flesh an inch so it'll take a mile, then you better do it. 
My point, friend, is you had better recognize if there's an area that gets you every Christmas, don't just go in hoping it won't happen. The Bible says don't make provision for the flesh. You better get with some people that love you and get a game plan and say, I don't want this to get me this Christmas. I don't want this to happen. I don't know what you got to do. Maybe it's some accountability. Maybe it's accountability software. Maybe it's turning some things off of your phone, getting rid of some apps. I have no idea, but I can guarantee you the Holy Spirit knows what you need to do to make not provision for the flesh. And all I'm urging you young people to get at is recognize this, that every one of you, as Pastor mentioned yesterday, represents probably hundreds, thousands, some of you tens of thousands, some of you hundred thousands of people who will be saved because you lived. And if you somehow get out of the will of God, may I say this? There's nobody to take your place. I'm convinced that every generation, God has a plan to reach the planet in that generation. The problem is, not everybody cooperates. And I will tell you, friend, your life is important. I don't care if you say, my parents are unsafe, man. Uh, my background is a disaster. I don't care where you, kind of background you come for. If you're saved, God has a plan for your life. And He wants to use you far better than you, more than you can even comprehend at this point in your life. But the point I'm making, friends, is Satan wants to knock you out. And he knocks you out by selfishness. He wants you to make selfish decisions. Because selfishness, as we've seen here very clearly, is a huge problem. And the, uh, uh, Paul is dealing with the Romans, saying, you've got to deal with self. You've got to deal with self. He says, two things you need to do. Number, stand, number one, it's theological. You understand who you are in Jesus and revel in it, man. Believe it, put it on, uh, live in the reality of who you are in Jesus. But he said, number two, there's a real practical one. That is, you know your flesh, and you know what gets you. Deal with it. You know, back in the day, it would might be, I'm not turning the television on, or I'm not going to be around when the TV's going. That might have been decisions young people would have made 20 years ago when Baptist College Ministry started. But now there's different applications. But it's the same truth. And it might be some other issue. Maybe you have an issue. You say, you have an issue. You say, man, I always just, I have struggles with my mother. We get in fights, okay? Then get with people who love you and say, I can't let that happen. Help me. What are the plans? What can we do? What verses can I memorize? Here's my point. Be proactive. So you can come back in January and say, I saw a measure of victory I've never seen in my life at Christmas time. But it will not just happen by hoping, wishful thinking might be a better way. It's only going to happen if you take the Word of God and say, I'm going to believe the Bible. I'm not making provision for the flesh. And some of you freshmen, I understand, you have to understand you have never seen victory at breaks in your life. You need to understand that that's not okay. There has to come a time in your life when you say, I'm done with this. we got to move to another level here. <laughs> but again, you're going to have to make those hard decisions to not make provision for the flesh. So heads bowed and eyes closed. No one's looking here. We've run out of time here. But